0: Welcome to Wireless Future. This is episode 23 and I'm Emil Bjornson. I'm located in Stockholm today and at another location we have Eric Larson. Where are you today?
1: Oh, good morning, Emil. I'm at Lynn Shopping as uh, always. How are you this morning? I'm great. It's a rainy day but I'm inside. And then we have a
0: third person on this call. We have a guest. I guess you are in Gothenburg. So Professor Henk Wiemersch from uh, uh, Chalmers Technical University and you're professor there in Communication Systems, right? Uh, How are you today?
2: Yes, hi good morning Emil, good morning Eric. Yes, I'm very good thank you. It's indeed raining here in Gothenburg as usual.
0: It's great to have you here and uh, the reason that we invited you was particular to talk about localization which I know is one of your expertise and uh, yeah I was just localizing each of us to the nearest city but I was thinking that probably we can with wireless technology today and in the future localize people to a much higher accuracy so yeah let's kick off the conversation what is wireless localization is this the same thing as positioning
2: Right, so these terms are often confused, and um, I think rightly so. So, To my understanding, they mean exactly the same thing, but they come from different fields. So the the terminology of positioning comes really from the the radio world, uh, especially 3GPP, and refers to the the determination of the 3D or 2D position of a connected device, like a smartphone, let's say. Mm. While localization originally came more from the robotics community, where it really referred to localizing a robot in, in 3D or even more dimensions in, in a map that it would build itself. But I think from the point of view of localization from, from radio signals, they really mean the same thing. Mm.
1: Yeah, so we might be using the terms interchangeably here, I suppose. <laughs> um, in, in fact, as you might know, at the I worked on localization and positioning for a brief period of time at the end of the nineties, and I want to tell people what I'm doing, working on positioning. They thought I was working on like positioning products in the market, which is a different thing, right? So yeah. <laughs> maybe localization is like I don't know, more ambiguous uh, term, perhaps for for the, for the layman. I'm not sure. Um, in any case, I thought we could start a bit on a historical perspective, because um, if we think localization, then, I mean, GPS, for example, has been around for many decades, right? And cellular positioning has been around for, I suppose, well, at least 20 years, um, say. Um, So now, during the last 20 years, to my understanding, what has happened is that, well, the signal processing has improved a lot, right? I mean, like, for example, mobile phones and handsets are a lot more capable, And also GPS has evolved into network assisted GPS where say the handset uses combined signals from the cellular network and satellites to to position. And also another thing that has been invented and and made reality in the last decade or so is the integration with IMUs and accelerometers and magnetometers and other types of sensors in the handsets. Right, so, are we now reaching like the the end here, or is there a need for more research on this field, or where do you see this like heading in in a historical perspective?
2: Yeah. So, so historically, uh, as you say, I would say GPS was kind of a, a landmark development where you could localize almost anywhere on Earth in three D, um, and then yeah, the the, the connection with network assisted GPS, where you get assistance information to improve the localization, the fusion with Additional sensors like IMU, inertial navigation, all of this kind of really helped push uh, localization and performance, but at the same time, um, GPS doesn't work everywhere, so you can imagine when you're in a city with tall buildings, then many GPS satellites will be occluded, and they don't have a good geometry for you to localize, so then you need other technologies. And this is, in particular, where other radio technologies can help you a lot, such as ultra-wideband, as also the 4G, 5G signals. And the need, I think, is driven in two directions. One is the the use cases, um, so that there's a push for for additional use cases that need higher and higher accuracy for localization. And on the other hand, there's the the development of the technologies, which enable better and better localization, which then, in turn, create new use cases. Mm Kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in a way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, of course. I, I mean, I suppose once there is a technology available that can offer us something, then there will be use cases and applications, right? And it's quite amazing, I think, how like accuracy of. Local or positioning or localization systems, even I mean, you just open your your cell phone and, and open the maps, then how that has improved over over the the, the last uh, few years. And I suppose that uh, it is this integration that you mentioned of GPS on one hand and cellular signals on the other hand and the way that they can interact and, and help and support each other that has made this possible to a large extent.
2: Yes I, I fully agree um, but, but but nevertheless the, the accuracy that you get is, is maybe down to a few meters in, 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 in typical cases unless you have very sophisticated processing and, and for novel use cases in the coming years this is probably not sufficient you can think of autonomous driving or localizing of UAVs.
0: So uh, I was thinking that uh, in this episode we will talk about some of the technology aspects and what process needs to be done in order to position or localize some thing, and maybe give a hint about what we then could improve in the future in order to bring down the uh, the error margins in, in your localization. So if we start with just the, the simplest case some kind of line of sight where you have a radio transmitter and you have your object you would like to uh, to communicate with or to localize in one or the other direction. How does uh, localization work in the line-of-sight scenario?
2: So the, the, the basic way of operating, which is common also to GPS and also to cellular localization, is something called time difference of arrival, um, where you have several base stations or GPS satellites that are synchronized and that have known positions. And this aspect of synchronization is really important because the way that you measure distances, let's say, is through time, the travel time of the radio signal over the air and then related to the speed of light, of course. And that means you need extremely tight synchronization to assign meaning to those measurements. Anyway, so what would happen typically is that those base stations or satellites, they broadcast signals. These signals are orthogonal in some way so that the user can disentangle them and figure out which signal comes from which. Base station or satellite and then just measures the time of arrival of that signal So it locally checks for some kind of correlation peak and says okay This is when the time of when the t- signal arrived in my own frame of reference in my own clock and Then uh, if you for instance want to do f- 3d localization You need four base stations or four satellites to localize because you want to solve for four unknowns the 3d position and the 1d clock bias So this is the basic operation on, on line of sight
1: so these are the basic operations in line of sight. So if we think like fundamentally, what is it, or what factors affect the accuracy that we can get in a positioning system? I mean, I would think, for example, that received power or received signal to noise ratio would make a difference, right? And that uh, the uh, bandwidth of the signal uh, w- would help, and. Uh, or rather that a large bandwidth would help and that the more antennas you have the better resolution that you can get. Um, Could you comment on that or is there like anything else that uh, any other determining factors in terms of accuracy now staying with the line of sight perhaps for the sake of the example here?
2: Right, so I think we should distinguish probably resolution versus accuracy. So these are not the same thing. So, resolution refers to the, to the ability to, to distinguish two signal paths that are relatively similar. And then you have resolution in the delay domain, resolution in velocity, resolution angle of arrival, angle of departure. So, there's many domains in which you could resolve multipath. Um, so, you can imagine that two signals are coming from the, the same direction, but with different delays. And if you have sufficient bandwidth, then you can resolve them in the delay domain, even if you cannot resolve them in the angle domain similarly if you have enough time to process your data you can have good doppler resolution so you can distinguish signals that are coming at same distance with same angle but different velocity if you have enough time to process your signal Um, similarly for instance angle of arrival resolution depends on the aperture of the receive array so if you have a large array with many antenna elements then you can distinguish signals with slightly different angle of arrival and finally, you also have angle of departure resolution, which depends on the size of the transmitter array. So all of these tell you how well you can separate, let's say, the line of sight path from all the other paths. Once you have this resolution, then it's about accuracy. And accuracy, like you say, Eric, is really about SNR. That tells you how well can I estimate the, the time of arrival or angle of arrival of this one particular path. And while resolution is something fixed, given the system, right? The accuracy is, is, in principle, unbounded. just depends on the SNR that you have.
0: Great. So um, if we then compare the localization problem with uh, communication, uh, I guess we, we are using sort of the same wireless medium around us. Uh, and I know communication also is uh, there the signal to noise ratio is an important metric in order to determine how many bits per second we can communicate Uh, but are these um, two use cases of wireless technology using the channel in the same way is it the same properties that are important to get a good uh, performance?
2: Yeah I I would probably say not at all Um, and in fact I Coming from a communication background, and moving into localization, I see there's really a big gap between how communication people and localization people treat the channel, what they know about the channel, what their models are, even though physically it's exactly the same channel, of course. So there's a number of differences. So first of all, in localization, you don't care about data because you're sending pilots. So the thing that you care most about is really the parameters of the channel, the delays and angles that are present in the channel, or the geometric information in the channel. While for communication, you care about your data, and estimating the channel is just something that you need to do to get to your data. So this is really something substantially different. Um, also, in localization, you, you care, as I said, about this resolvability about having a clean line-of-sight path, while for communication maybe this is not even very desirable that everything is very well separated. You care maybe about rich scattering environments with lots of diversity. From a localization perspective, I I don't want that at all. I want to have a clean separation of the different paths. And also, if there's a very weak multipath component, from a communication point of view, you would just discard it. You wouldn't care about it. But for localization, this could be very useful because it carries geometric information so th- th- there's a big gap between those, those two approaches communication versus localization
1: it's really like uh, in communi- i mean in in localization then it is the channel or the estimate of the channel that contains the information right whereas in communications, the channel itself is of no independent interest. It's almost like an, just a nuisance parameter when you <laughs> are to detect your data. Uh, yeah,
2: yes yeah. and no. Um, I, I think this is somewhat changing in the sense that <clears throat> as we move to 5G and higher carrier frequencies that the, the, the location information can become important for the communication. you can think of, for instance, of beam alignment where having prior location knowledge can really help speed up the initial beam alignment problem.
1: Right, that's a good point indeed. So, uh, so speaking of waveforms, um, are there any particular waveforms that are good for localization? I mean, I would think for example that, uh, well, one thing we know is that waveforms that are good for communications, they tend to have a wide bandwidth, right, and a relatively flat, say, uh, uh, spectrum, uh, with uh, about as much power at every frequency. And uh, waveforms that are good for localization, if you think, for example, camera bound for time delay estimation, then it's also the effective bandwidth they want to be large, right? And uh, uh, so signals with a wide spectrum support and that have a wide bandwidth should be good both for communications and for localization. But beyond that, uh, say elementary insight, um, what can be said about what waveforms are suitable for localization?
2: Yeah, so here, uh, again, I would think resolution versus accuracy. If I think about resolution, then it's really just to create the bandwidth that I have available, coherent integration time, aperture of the transmitter that receive array. It doesn't really matter what kind of waveform that I use. But if I think about accuracy and cream array bound, then indeed it matters a lot. So a good example would be, for instance, as you say, in a wideband signal, let's say OFDM, you would want to have a, maybe uniform spectrum, while for localization, you want to put more power on the boundaries of the spectrum. And, and something similar happens, for instance, for uh, beam design. So suppose that you want to send information towards a user in a certain direction, you would direct a beam towards that direction. But for localization, this turns out to be not the optimal thing. You want to send a combination of beams that are directive, plus that have a null towards that direction, because this combination helps you to do better localization. So, th- yeah. so the design is somehow different.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not only the camera bound that matters, right? It's the ambiguity function of the waveform, uh, of course. And then there might be cases where it's advantageous to, rather than spreading the power, say, uniformly over some frequency band, you want to put a lot of power at the end, uh, at, at the left and at the right end of the spectrum and just a little bit in, in, in the middle. Uh, which will give you a, a good kilometer bound for accuracy, but it'll also give you a, a reasonable. Um, I mean, you, you need something in the middle of the spectrum to get a reasonable ambiguity function.
2: Yes, and here uh, there's a kind of distinction between um, kind of. Localization without any prior information versus a tracking problem. So when you're doing tracking, then you already have lots of prior knowledge of where the, the user is. And then you could use this criminal bound optimized waveforms because you don't care about the ambiguities. But if you know nothing, then of course, ambiguity functions should really be taken into account in the design.
0: So now you have been using some some terms here that I'm not sure if all of our listeners are familiar with. So so just yes, for uh, for a brief recap, so the Cromera bound and the ambiguity functions, uh, what are, are these things? This is signal processing terminology, I suppose?
2: Yeah. So so the lower bound is a way to um, it's a lower bound on the accuracy of of estimation problems under some technical conditions. So it basically tells you, given this setup, this is the best that you can hope to achieve. And then if you have an algorithm that operates close to this bound, then you're basically done. There's no need to do better than you think about reducing complexity. And So this is a tool that is often used for designing signals, for deciding where you should put base stations, how should, should satellites be distributed, how you do time frequency and spatial allocation of signals. Um, the ambiguity function, you can think about the uh, autocorrelation function. So I, I think that that's really what this is about, that it should have like a distinct peak and no distinct side peaks, no significant side peaks, because these would be mixed up with, with the true location of the objects.
0: Great. Uh, so we have these generations of cellular technology, and I think most people when they hear about 3G, 4G, 5G, they think about decommunication benefits that you're having, maybe higher data rates or uh, lower latencies and things like that. Then uh, I read in a recent paper of you uh, where you were describing sort of how the wireless localization technology has sort of evolved from generation to generation. You talked about 4G, what happens now with 5G um, and then wrote about what might happen beyond 5G as well so I was thinking we could go through this evolution and then start with uh, how would you say that localization works in 4G?
2: So in in 4G the main reason to do localization and this is important too is for emergency call localization so there was no commercial use case for localization and the requirement on the localization accuracy was not very strict The way that localization is done in 4G mainly is something called uh, OTDOA, and this is basically TDOA like I explained before, so where base station sends signal in the downlink, the user estimates the arrival times, and from this constructs basically hyperboloids, and then on the intersection of those the user must lie. Um, This is limited mainly by the resolution, which is the bandwidth, right, Uh, the bandwidth is small in 4G. Which means that you have uncertainties of the user location on the order of fifty to one hundred meters.
0: Hmm. Okay, so um, yeah,
1: yeah. What is next? So I mean, speaking of generations here, right, and how the technology actually works, like in our uh, in, in our mobile phones. Then, how does positioning work? If I pick up my cell phone here, <laughs> okay and turn on the Open the Maps say app uh, on it, then what happens behind the scenes there? What signals are used and how are they fused, and how does this differ from whether I have a 4G phone, say, and a 5G enabled phone?
2: But the, the position estimate that you get on your phone is a fusion of many sensors, right? It, it's not just the radio signal. So there, there's the GNSS information, there's maybe IMU information, other kind of fingerprinting information that could be available in the system and then in addition you could have this very coarse 4G information but I think if you have a 4G phone and you want to localize yourself probably the 4G signal does not play a very important role Mm. not to get this very precise location.
1: Not to get the precise location but does it not even play a role in order to help the GPS? I mean one of the functions in a GPS receiver is to locate the peak of the correlation between the uh, spreading code and the received signal from the satellite, right, and when you do that then there might be spurious peaks due to noise, so the more prior information you have about where the peak is expected to be, the more the better you can do and the less sensitive to noise and maybe even interference you can be um, in the localization. So, um, I think that's what's called the network-assisted GPS, right? That you're using site information from the cellular network in detecting uh, the satellite signals in GPS and in, in estimating their time delay, uh, uh, which is then subsequently used to obtain the position fix. Um, so is that being done? I mean, is that technology now widespread and implemented in our handsets with network assisted GPS so that the um, 4GSA or, or even 5G signals help the mobile to, uh, well, coarsely locate where this correlation peak is and thereby help the GPS in, in, in tough operating conditions. I mean, for example, sitting in a basement or at the cell or, or at some, some place where satellite coverage is very poor, and this should be highly useful, huh?
2: Yes, I agree, in principle, it should be highly useful. Whether it is used uh, a lot, I'm not really sure. I don't have uh, information regarding that.
0: So uh, I remember maybe it was almost 10 years ago now, that uh, I wanted to track my, my running uh, times and things like that. So I bought a Garmin GPS clock and uh, I realized that where I was living with tall buildings and a hill uh, next to me, it was very hard to uh, sort of lock onto sufficient number of uh, satellites to get a good starting point for my run. So I thought that I was somewhere completely else. Uh, so then I was like, oh, I bought this clock and now maybe I should just use use my phone instead because at least it is pretending as if it knows where I am because of this assisted uh, thing. So so there it seemed to to play a big uh, difference for me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point of course. Mm.
1: Yeah. Um, So in 5G you said that then the actual cellular signals are also used more directly for localization But, I mean, what is the basic accuracy that we could get in 5G? And is is GPS still useful then? I mean, or in a a 5G handset? Is it like, uh, well, it it can receive GPS signals and it can receive 5G signals. Um, Would the accuracy from GPS be comparable to the accuracy for 5G, or is it still essential? I mean, to combine the signals and to use also other sensory input from IMUs for example. Well I,
2: I think whatever will happen you will always fuse information from different sensors. I think that good. That
1: so that's that really def- key here to the improved uh, and, and uh, in fact the quite amazing accuracy that we can get from raw, I mean off the shelf like cell phone equipment right. Mm.
2: Right, but then in in 5G, of course, we will uh, have these new frequency bands, uh, FR2 range around 28 gigahertz, where there's a lot of spectrum available, a lot of bandwidth available, and and this is expected to really improve positioning.
0: So uh, that then goes back to the things you mentioned before, then yeah, more bandwidth is better, and uh, then if you go up in frequency, you also do you get better angular resolution and things like that as well.
2: Right. So in five G, five G is the first generation where, where they said okay, probably we can also support some more commercial use cases, not just this emergency call localization. I really, really, we can really push positioning performance. And then they've spent a lot of effort in three GPP to define new reference signals, new methods for localization. So it goes far beyond time difference of arrival localization. There's also round-trip time measurements, so from a base station to a user and back, and then as you say, Mill, there's also angle measurements, so that where the base station would send beams in different directions, the user measures power, and then the beam with the largest power would then give an angle of departure estimate, which can really help localization. So one
0: term that I hear sometimes, in particular, when people talk about uh, future technologies and in keynotes and so, are sensing. Is this related to localization as well?
2: It it depends who you talk to, but in in my view, yes. Um, So there's different kinds of sensing. There's something called monostatic sensing, and there's also bistatic and multistatic sensing. So monostatic sensing is what happens in your uh, the radar of your car, right? So the the, the the sensor emits a signal and you receive the backscattered signal at the same sensor and then you can map the environment. In um, 4G, 5G systems this is relatively hard to do because you need full duplex operation and this is full duplex where you need an, an enormous um, Kind of isolation with the transmitter-receiver chain to receive those very weak backscattered signals. So this is really hard to achieve. There's a lot of academic studies there, but in, in reality, this is really challenging. Um, there's also then bistatic sensing, where the transmitter and the receiver are not located in the same place. And then you can imagine the case where there's a base station emitting a signal, a user is receiving the signal, and also trying to detect the multipath and try to relate the multipath to objects in the environment and then map the environment. This would be by static sensing. In addition there's also other sensing uh, like weather sensing, rain sensing that could also be done by radio signals.
1: Mm. So when you say, I mean, when we say localization or positioning, we really mean, I thought, uh, obtaining a, a coordinate, right, of your, your well, whatever device you're having. Um, but when we say sensing, it's more about learning something about what the environment looks like. For example, if you're on the highway and you have a radar device mounted on the car and figuring out whether there's anyone ahead of you or anyone to the side or to the left and the right and so forth. Um, and it seems to me that... Uh, well, everything that makes like a, a waveform or a system good for localization should also open opportunities for, for sensing, right? I mean, the larger bandwidth you have, for example, the more finely you can resolve um, paths in in, uh, in in range. And the, the larger aperture or the more antennas you have, the more resolution you'll have in the spatial domain and so forth. um Yes, so uh, maybe I can comment on that. This is exactly true, but I,
2: I don't see them as two separate problems. There's not a localization and a sensing problem. They really go hand in hand. And this is known as something as SLAM, simultaneous localization and mapping.
1: It's
2: Yeah, The example that I gave before, I think, is, is a good one, where you, you can localize with a single base station if you also exploit the multipath information. If you don't exploit the multipath, you are lost.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with SLAM, you actually build a map uh, simultaneously as you proceed along and locate or position yourself. Um, yeah. Indeed, yes. So um, now looking ahead, I mean, so for 6G, there are a number of, I think, new technologies uh, emerging, right? I mean, there is terahertz for one thing, and there's also this concept of reflecting intelligent surface, which is essentially like a passive MIMO base station, right? Where, you know, you have some kind of (laughs) um, panel, with many small elements and these elements can be individually configured so that an impinging uh, radio wave is reflected into some direction that you can adaptively decide. Um, So how do you see that terahertz and reflecting intelligent surfaces will or could play a role in uh, improved say localization and also sensing for that matter in, in, in 6G? Yeah, so so the technologies that you
2: list, uh, these intelligent surfaces and and terahertz uh, carriers are indeed really interesting for communication, but I think also even more perhaps for localization and sensing. Um, When I talk about terahertz, I I maybe mean uh, carriers up to 300 gigahertz, maybe not all the way to terahertz, just because Mm -hmm. the the range will be really small at those uh, high frequencies. And the main benefit is again, and it really boils down to these essentials, right? It's about resolution. Because we're going to terahertz, because when we wanna push the data rates, the only way we can push the data rates is by larger bandwidths. And again, this is really good for localization. Um, the intelligent surfaces, they, they act like base stations, somehow cheap base stations. And if you, if you can localize them, if you know where they are, you know what their orientation is, they provide new signal sources for positioning. Mm so you, you can localize with one base station I think you can even localize without any base station just by using these intelligent surfaces mm. and in general my view from coming from localization is that we we're kind of driven by what the communication people do they, they come up with all these amazing concepts I mean think of mm. massive mimo millimeter wave now terahertz intelligent surfaces and then we think okay how can we reuse those for localization how do the how do the models of the, these technologies need to be refined that they, that they contain geometric information that we can extract?
1: Right. So you're say, saying that with terahertz, then we'll get these enormous bandwidths, which in, time, in turn will give us a very fine time and range resolution. And uh, with intelligent surfaces, then, well, in principle, they could be like, configured to provide additional multipaths that could be exploited by localization algorithms. Wow. So these are quite exciting prospects, I think, and seems like a goldmine of research problems for folks to work on here for the decade to come.
2: Yes, indeed. And I've been working in the field of radio localization since the, I would say 2005, and it was kind of a very small area. Right, but but now at the end of 5G and the beginning of 6G, it, it becomes this enormous boom where, where the communication community sees this need for tightly integrating communication, mm-hmm. localization, sensing, and all of these things are converging. So it's a, yeah. a really exciting time in this field.
0: Yeah, and it seems um, also that uh, we might be Uh, having larger improvements that people really can experience in their everyday life in this area. Because uh, yeah, if you now can deliver with 5G 500 megabit per second the number of situations where you need more than that might be rather slim. Uh, Then you can definitely find special use cases for it but if you are going from being able to localize something down to uh, tenth of meters to I don't know how accurate can you get the estimate you think in a five G system, so millimeter wave and everything.
2: Yeah, there's a distinction between I guess what people predict it and what is really possible. If you look even at 3GPP documents, they predict very accurate localization indoors, line of sight, under synchronized conditions, down to a few decimeters. Uh, Whether this is really possible depends on on lots of other factors than just the pure signals. It's also about hardware impairments, calibration effects. Um, I think people are now stepping back from that and maybe thinking 5G will go down to a few meters, right? Maybe two, three meters Well, 6G will be the the amazing new technology that will bring us down all the way to one centimeter. But if you ask me again in a few years and I say, of course 6G could not deliver and maybe it was uh, 20 centimeters, but no matter what it would still be amazing.
0: Yeah, we we are almost, uh, always uh, aiming for a little bit more than we can can deliver, and then uh, we we promise that five G will solve everything until five G appears, and then six G is the new technology that will solve all the problems that five G had, and maybe it has. We are recycling the same visions, just a little bit more, super faster. Uh, one thing that I that you mentioned there was about hardware impairments. I was thinking here, I have my, my laptop in front of me and it's like less than a meter from my Wi-Fi station. So I probably have a huge SNR, I don't know, 60 decibels or something. And then I'm really limited, not by the, the quality of the radio signal, but probably about what kind of radio hardware I have because I cannot get larger modulations symbols or more constellation points than the standard is is predicting, do you think we will enter a case where the it won't be the radio resources that are limiting our accuracy uh, when it comes to localization but rather the uh, hardware in the, the different devices and how synchronized they are?
2: That's probably true and not just for localization, also for communication. The, the, there's so many hardware impairments when you go to these terahertz or at least hundreds of gigahertz carrier frequencies that will be much more dominant than at, at centimeter-wave or millimeter-wave frequencies. Um, nevertheless, f- from a communication perspective, typically you care about this end-to-end channel, right? And you don't really care what happens in between, Well, for localization and sensing, we are much more sensitive to, to the hardware impairments, because we care exactly about these angles and delays and dopplers that are hidden inside of the channel and that are really affected by, by all the processing that is done. Just think of phase noise, mutual coupling, power amplifier non-linearity. They can just completely destroy the quality of our position estimates. So, yes, I think this is an important challenge. A related challenge is also calibration, which I mentioned before. Um, if you want to go down to one centimeter localization accuracy, right? one centimeter, if you think how much does light need to travel to cover one centimeter, it's a fraction of a nanosecond. Which means that you need to be able to synchronize devices with this extreme accuracy. Uh, to synchronize base stations at the, I don't know, m- picosecond level, to calibrate arrays individually, to know the complex beam patterns, to place them exactly in the right orientation is enormously challenging.
1: Mm. Yeah, so, so these are extraordinary challenges, as it seems to me. I mean, to calibrate an array with that precession, right? So, Uh, It really sounds like at some point we'll be reaching a situation where hardware impairments and the ability to calibrate and compensate for nonlinearities and uh, phase alignment errors and uh, so forth will dictate ultimately what accuracy we can achieve. So speaking uh, of technology and uh, algorithms for localization, we talked a bit earlier, I think, about triangulation and trilateration, right? Where you have a line of sight propagation environment and you obtain your position essentially by measuring time of arrival or time difference of arrival or angle of arrival or, or, or angle of departure possibly. Uh, but what if we are in non-line-of-sight, so that there's a lot of multipath around and objects that scatter and reflect the signals. What are the state-of-the-art technologies there today?
2: Right. Um, so th- th- this happens typically a lot, I would say in lower frequencies, that you have rich scattering, lots of multipath and a non-resolved multipath. Because if the multipad can be resolved, then you can apply these SLAM techniques and, and kind of track and, and map the environment. So then you can localize even when the line of sight is not present. But in these lower frequencies, then I would say the state of the art is fingerprinting, which means that you um, someone beforehand maps the environment, so goes in different locations and kind of measures the, the, the channel and then builds a database of this, this mapping from channel to location. And then the user would come in later and then measures the channel and then you would invert this mapping to find the best estimate of the user location. This is really the the state-of-the-art and this of course closely relates to to machine learning technology.
1: Right, so what you're saying essentially is that once we have enough resolvability of the multipath components, which could be achieved for example by a large enough bandwidth and high enough SNR, then in principle we can track how individual multipath components appear and disappear and how they move around in the environment, right? So essentially using like a parametric or semi-parametric description of um, what the environment looks like. Um, But in the regime where multipath isn't resolvable to any significant extent, which is typically the case at lower frequencies where also the bandwidths are less then you'd rely on machine learning algorithms and specifically fingerprinting, which to my understanding is basically that, you know, you send someone around um, and measure the channel impulse response at different locations and then you create a database and then you have an algorithm that, you know, it receives an estimated channel impulse response and then it goes to the database and looks where is it most likely that this came from, right? Yeah, is yeah, that, that is, yeah. Th- th-
2: yeah, I think that's exactly true. But nevertheless, even at higher frequencies, even if a multipath is resolved, then there's a, a next level of, of mm. unresolvability, right? Because e- even if you know a signal is coming from a certain wall, this wall has many features, will have many multipath components, diffuse mm. multipath. And, and even there, when you think about, for instance, radar imaging systems, mm. then... Machine learning also plays a role there uh, mm. to figure out more refined features, is it the bicyclist or is it the pedestrian, what is really happening in this environment.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that seems to be true from radar is that once you increase your aperture or increase your bandwidth, what happens is you just discover more and more components, right? More and more scattering objects, more and more multipath and so forth. So. Uh, it's not like you increase your bandwidth and well the multipath components stay the same. It's just you can resolve them better with finer accuracy. But in, in, in contrast, you discover more and more of them. So the environment really looks messy, right? I mean, no matter how many antennas, how large bandwidth, how high SNR, you still it's like you're just uncovering more and more detail in your propagation environment. So at some point, it might still be machine learning that will come to rescue here then
2: yeah that, that's exactly yeah. true. And this is also what we're seeing in radar and, and mm. other kind of sensors that mm. machine learning will be used at this kind of final processing step to to reveal all the hidden information.
0: So I think uh, one very basic type of fingerprinting that our mobile phone have been using for a long time is to just keep track on uh, what Wi-Fi uh, routers that are around. I remember a few years ago there were a big thing about that both Google and Apple have some kind of databases of uh, what a Wi-Fi station to have and then they were sort of storing, at least Apple was storing forever how you have been moving around with your phone and uh, where, you, uh, what Wi-Fi station you saw so you can create maps of it. So then when that became public they were sort of also starting to remove part of it. So it seems like fingerprinting is something that is actually used already.
2: Yes, I think so. Of course, it requires this this continuous mapping effort and keeping track of building this database, which is a bit challenging. And as you somehow hinted that, there's also some also potential privacy considerations there.
0: Indeed, I think that was sort of the, the news media coverage approach to it that the privacy aspect of it and uh, yeah to switch a bit topic I was looking at your Google scholar and saw a very impressive thing that you have one paper called cooperative localization for wireless network with more than a thousand citations that may be curious what is cooperative localization
2: so so the principle of cooperative localization was to um, let devices exchange signals with each other and then compute relative positions uh, relative so distances angles dopplers and then aggregate all this information throughout the network and then if you have a few devices that know where they are then you can uh, use this information to localize everybody in the network and of course this was the extreme case you can also think of this as a one device that's connected to a base station and connected to another device and they could help each other localize. So this is really what corporative localization is about. So devices helping each other localize through relative measurements over, you could think a side link in a 5G system.
0: So is this something that is uh, now on the way of being utilized in 5G or in future? Or where do we stand on this type of technology?
2: Yeah, in 5G it's a bit Tricky because the, the telecom companies are not very keen to to use those side links because then maybe they, they lose some control um, There are other applications you can think of um, Autonomous um, automotive radar systems that are maybe will be used in the future to communicate as well And their cooperative localization could play a role. So I, I don't think commercially it's, it's been used, but I do see a potential in the future that it, that it, it will be used on this I think it's getting ever more likely that it will be used
0: Yeah, I think one interesting aspect that you were also touching upon there is to what extent localization is a service that should be in the network itself it delivers it to you and maybe you you pay extra for the service or something or whether it's sort of an app that uh, runs over the top I guess when you are using uh, Google Maps or Apple Maps you you get localization estimates but you also get some additional uh, additional information from their servers and there there is some kind of gathered information maybe not what you described but uh, uh, that you know where traffic jams are going to happen because uh, there is a database around this thing so so maybe this is something that can be added on on top in some kind of cooperative localization apps
2: <laughs> yeah yeah probably i mean all of this is about interfaces apis and agreements between these industries so once these measurements become available then yeah, you can run lots of
1: applications on top indeed mm. yeah quite amazing wow so Yeah, I think we are um, approaching the uh, close-up here, Emil, and uh, one thing that I will bring back and I think everyone in the audience should bring back is that uh, it seems that, I mean, positioning historically has been a lot about geometry, right? Obtaining time of arrival measurements and time difference of arrival and drawing circles or hyperbolas and check whether they intersect and so forth. Whereas the kind of modern and emerging approach is really to use machine learning, right? Where everything is like data driven, where you fingerprint your environment, you collect measurements of what your channel impulse response say, looks like at different locations in the, in the room or, or out there in, in nature. And then you have you create a huge database and just rely on that data for um, when you obtain your location information. Uh, It's quite exciting, I think, and an exciting prospect for how modern machine learning techniques also can be used. Um, Is there anything else, Hank, that you would want to add here to the discussion before we uh, close up for today?
2: Yeah, maybe one item I could mention is that I agree that machine learning um, has lots of uses, but maybe it should not be used to solve all problems. There's many problems that we can still use model-based methods, I think, for a few more years. At some point, machine learning will be needed. Mm. Um, But one area where I see that machine learning could play a role is in in dealing with the hardware impairments. Because when you have transmitter and receiver chains with the concatenation of many linear, non-linear, and noisy impairments, Mm. it's impossible to build a model and then using ai could, could yeah do that really
1: I, I, I think no question i mean we are in agreement here and don't be wrong i mean so i obviously also think that once we have models that are accurate enough then we should exploit them right and but but i thought the point is rather that we said earlier that you know i mean you go up in aperture right you add more and more antennas you get higher and higher special resolution you go up in bandwidth so you can resolve more and more multipath components but even so it's difficult to build accurate geometric models that account for all the multipath propagation and all the scattering and all that's going on there because as we increase bandwidth as we increase aperture or number of antennas we just uncover more and more detail so at some point an entirely based or model based approach to the positioning problem becomes just infeasible and Relying on machine learning might in the end be the only um, option.
2: Y- yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. But I guess t- time will tell.
1: Time will tell. Yes.
0: <laughs> so then before we, we wrap up, I, I hope we have inspired uh, uh, some people of our listeners to want to conduct research or study this field in more detail because i i think while there is a huge amount of people working with wireless communication research today the community of people working with localization my impression is it is that it's smaller but at the same time there might be be more important challenges there i mean more room for improvement that can actually make a difference in our everyday lives so uh, do you have some final thoughts about if someone wants to start working in this field what should you learn what should you um, yeah what are the main challenges that you should try to
2: address that is a very difficult question <laughs> <laughs> I, I think definitely you should learn signal processing it's uh, i think uh, that's really our common language between communication and localization if you have a good basis in signal processing you can solve uh, nearly all problems and i I think from localization perspective it's really important to use realistic models of channels you you cannot get away with uh, very simplified models and have something that is reasonable and credible and and that's really the starting point for for all research in both communication and localization you need to have a a good way of representing the channel
0: Mm. Uh, so are, are we also coming to the point where we we need to do more experimental research in this direction to, to validate that uh, our models are, are good, or do we know that they are uh, good?
2: Yeah, th- th- this is really something that I think will change in the future, that we have to step away from our, our maybe very beautiful mathematical models and, and kind of start facing reality and talking more to people who do circuits, antennas, who really know about the hardware and, and make real progress in, in these areas. So this is really challenging for us but I see we we have to do it.
0: Indeed uh, I think this is uh, really uh, the important thing now when we are doing research towards 6 that instead of trying to rush to find uh, the latest use cases or things like that to really take this time now. 60 shouldn't be here until 10 years from now so to go back and uh, if you know signal processing, uh, learn about the electromagnetics or if you know electromagnetics learn about signal processing and communication mm-hmm. theory or uh, try to, to expand your, your knowledge so that these different fields can can really uh, come together and do real credible uh, advances. So Eric, mm-hmm. do you have any final thoughts
1: or? <laughs> uh, no, not really, more than to reiterate what I think you said, Hank. right, that learn signal processing, and indeed, I tell my students in my first lecture that learn model-based signal processing, right, like classical detection estimation theory, for example, and learn data-driven signal processing, which means modern machine learning methods and neural networks and all that, because we need both.
2: Indeed, I couldn't have uh, said better myself.
0: A great wrap-up then. So uh, thank you to all the listeners for uh, staying with us all until the end. And we are very grateful to have Hank here as our guest in this episode. And uh, yes, we will put some some links in the description to this uh, episode where you can also find some recommended reading by Hank's if you would like to know more. And with that, I would just like to thank everyone for, for listening and being here. Thank you.